Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back, everyone. This week, we meet Ricky Cobb. He's better known to everyone on Twitter as Super 70s Sports. Cobb is consistently one of the most entertaining follows for his blend of nostalgic sports and pop culture tweets. Though his Twitter handle is a tad misleading, the content is mostly a blend of 70s and 80s references to popular athletes, movies, and TV shows. How popular is he? Well, he now has over 360,000 followers and has started a line of sports apparel tied into his content. Not bad for a sociology professor in suburban Chicago. Pulling back the curtain now, with no further ado, here's a conversation with the brains behind Super 70s Sports, Ricky Cobb. Ricky, if I told you five years ago you'd be one of the biggest sports celebrities on Twitter, what would you have said? I would have said that you have a very strange imagination, probably. <laughs> uh, no, no way would I have imagined that that would ever be the scouting report on me. So how did it start, and when did you know that you were onto something? Well, it, it began in earnest on January 1st, 2015. I had dabbled with it some months before that and just had other things going on in my life, frankly, and didn't have a lot of time for it. And so I I, I made an attempt to begin it early in 2014, and it was really just a hobby. It was something that I was going to do to amuse myself. Maybe some of my friends would would follow it and enjoy some of it, but it really wasn't anything any more than that. And so um, I, I woke up on January 1st, 2015, and for some reason it just crossed my mind that I had this Twitter account that I had started some, I don't know, nine months or a year previously. I think I had 500 followers, which at the time didn't seem insubstantial to me, <laughs> but uh I thought, you know, well, I'm either going to do something with this or I'm not. And so I woke up that morning, and I believe I tweeted a photo of the 1977 L.A. Dodgers uh, looking like they'd just gotten back from Men's Warehouse. They were <laughs> they were well polyestered, and uh, they looked like they were on Fantasy Island. I still don't even know the actual origin of the photo. And I began with one tweet on, on that morning, and I just haven't stopped. So five and a half years later, I... I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to ripkinize myself, but uh, I don't think I've missed a day in in those five and a half years. Why the title? Why Super 70s Sports? 
Well, that's a question that I get frequently, and the the honest answer is is I probably put almost no time into it <laughs> when I created the account. If I had known uh, what the you know what lied before me, I probably would have uh, come up with a different name. But but I'm kind of glad I didn't. You know, I get a lot of I get a lot of uh, comments when I post things that are outside the '70s yeah. or if I post things that are not sports related, I mean, not certainly not the people that follow the account, but, but newbies uh, sometimes like to uh, call me out on the fact that I'm not true uh, 100% of the time by any means to, to the name of the account. But, um, you know, it's just a name that I picked, probably put about three seconds of thought into <laughs> it. And I uh, had no idea that I was going to be married to that name for, uh, you know, <laughs> indefinitely into the future. Right. But, um, but, you know, I, I like the name and it would be hard to imagine it uh, being named something else at this point. So when did you know that were you that you were really onto something? Was it about picking up a major celebrity follower? Was it a certain number of retweets or likes? Or was there some some sort of uh, you know, light bulb moment for you that you had latched onto something? There were certain milestones, I guess, along the way that kind of, indicated to me that maybe I was on the right track. Um, you know, initially when, when I began the account, uh, the goal was to get to a thousand and I was adding about 10 followers a day. And I distinctly remember, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be like, yeah, man, I got 12 new followers today. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> when I hit a thousand, I thought, well, that's really something. And, and then it became two, and then it became three, and, and, and I would say by the summer of 2015, I, when I got up over 5,000, I thought, well, this is larger than, than I thought it would get, and probably the first real, I mean, I suppose in some ways the first indication is when you start seeing people uh, retweet you or follow you that are names that you know. Uh, you know, that at first was a little bit of a jolt, like, oh, wow, like mm -hmm. some of these tweets are getting outside of my friendship circle. And, <laughs> you know, they're actually getting out there into the world and people that people that I've heard of uh, are, are seeing this stuff. So that was that was maybe one indication early on. And then uh, at the end of 2015, uh, Sports Illustrated named the account to their I think they called it the Twitter 100. It was actually the last year that they did it. Okay. But uh, they, they named me one of their 100 must-follow sports uh, Twitter accounts or something along those lines. And so I got a little bit of recognition from, from SI there. And that, I think, you know, kind of was – but that was probably as much as anything the moment that I realized that there was kind of – you know, I had reached the point of no return. That this yeah. I, I didn't know exactly what this was going to be, but I knew that it was going to be something. All right, so I want to get into kind of what inspires you, but first I want to know more about you. Let's go back to the beginning and see how things shaped you. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And who were your favorite sports teams growing up? Well, I am from the uh, metropolis of Horse Cave, Kentucky. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's my origin story. Population right. 2000, uh, one red light, at least in my formative years. <laughs> And uh, lots of caves, caves and cows and, and one red light. I mean, it really is rural uh, America. And so I had a very small town uh, existence growing up. I was a country kid. Um, and 
you know, being in Kentucky, the, you know, the thing that everybody in Kentucky is into, you know, except for some people that live in Louisville is, is UK basketball. Mm-hmm. So I was a, I was a big UK basketball fan when I was a kid, you know, that's just passed down, uh, you know, as a, as a family legacy, basically in that state and pro sports, it was a little bit different, right? Because we, we had a triple a baseball team, but other than that, uh, you know, you're going to have to look outside of the state for, for major league sports to follow. And so I kind of became sort of a, a free agent fan. I was, to be honest with you, I was kind of a typical front running kid. <laughs> I started rooting for the teams that were good. So when I was a kid, I liked the Yankees. I liked the Cowboys. Uh, I liked uh, the 76ers. So I, I kind of went with uh, the players that I liked, you know, so Reggie Jackson was my, my favorite baseball player and it mm-hmm. still is. Mm-hmm. Julius Irving was my guy in the NBA. Sure. I, I like Roger Staubach and, and Tony Dorsett. So, um, so, you know, I was kind of just a la carte uh, picking my favorite teams because I didn't necessarily have a regional loyalty. So, and you stayed in Kentucky to go to school or did you leave the state? I stayed in Kentucky. I, I went to uh, Western Kentucky University undergrad okay. and uh, got a degree in government there, realized that I wanted to be a teacher. I was one of those people that didn't figure out what I wanted to be. I, was always, I always looked at other people who knew what they wanted to be, you know, in high school yeah. and, and things like that. And I thought, well, you know, who are these people that know what they want to be? I, I, was in my, I was in my early to mid-20s, and I still didn't have any idea really. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, sorry for my dog. No, that's here. All right. He's an excitable uh, guy. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where um, I thought of, I, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And so by the time that I realized I wanted to be a teacher, I was pretty far along in my government degree and I was a sociology minor. So uh, once I graduated, I I went on to grad school at the University of Louisville, got my master's in sociology, and, uh, you know, set out to be a college professor. And that's what I thought I was going to be doing primarily, uh, you know, professionally for the rest of my life. And certainly I've kind of taken a detour at this point. Well, you still, you, are you still a professor at Moraine Valley? Moraine Valley Community College uh, is in Palos Hills outside of Chicago. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's it's in Palos Hills, uh, in the Burbs here, and I am wrapping up. Uh, actually, it's finals week here. Uh, weird COVID finals yeah. because we've moved entirely to to online instruction this semester. But yeah, I'm wrapping up my 17th year as a college professor, and uh, you know, for now, I, I'm still doing that. Although, as the as the, the Twitter and the business and so forth starts to take up more and more of my time and, and becomes larger. Uh, you know, I do, I do start to think about, you know, what things are going to look like for me in the next couple of years. So what are your sociology classes like? Are they fun classes? Are you a fun professor? Well, you know, I'm biased, right? So <laughs> whatever you, whatever you hear from me is going to be very pro my classes. But, um, you know, I hope that they're fun classes. I, you know, I tell my students, I, I, I didn't come here to be tortured and I didn't come here to torture you. You know, we're, we're in this together. 
Uh, I've got you here. Most of my classes, they're 75-minute lectures twice a week, so two and a half hours that we're going to spend together with any particular class. I figure if we're going to be here, we might as well have fun. So I do think that a lot of my personality comes through uh, in the classes, and I would say the I would say the rep on me is that I'm probably one of the more fun professors. Yeah. Have your students recognized your Twitter celebrity? Um, some have discovered it. I don't broadcast it, sure, because I've I've never really figured out how to do that without it looking like a really self congratulatory, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of. Uh, sort of a dick move in a way, right? <laughs> to say, hey, by the way, yeah. completely uh, unrelated to anything that you're here for, let me toot my own horn. So yeah. I don't talk about it very much, but uh, you know, there was a piece on me in the, in the Chicago Tribune last year, and uh, some of my students saw it and asked me about it during class, actually. Mm. So it, it wound up being an impromptu show and tell for about 15 minutes of the students wanting to know exactly how their professor, uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, uh, had this uh, other secret life. So outside of being a sociology professor, how much of your day is taken up by being Super 70s sports? Do you have a work schedule for this, or is it just kind of random? It's The short answer is all of it. It's <laughs> from the minute I wake up until I go to sleep. And that my, my wife would attest. That that is that's not much of an exaggeration. Mm. I'm I always have my phone. I'm always thinking. I'm always using spare time to look for content, and I'm tweeting in stolen moments all day long from pretty much uh, you know dawn till dawn until I, I, I go to sleep. Practically, it's uh, it's an all-consuming process. And fortunately, I love it because otherwise uh, there wouldn't really be any way that you could do it. So, um, you know, it's a pleasure for me. But, boy, I I put in a lot of hours. I would say I easily log 80 hours a week on on Super 70s. So you and you and your wife have seven daughters between you. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of wondering that um, as the only male in the house is this kind of your outlet? Is Twitter your outlet to get that male side out when there's not a whole lot of understanding for that in your own house? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it, they're cries for help, you know, <laughs> I think is what it really is. Um, you know, well, it's, it's actually, I've, I've kind of got a little bit of, a, of, of the, an opposite problem uh, lately with the with the way that things are, are going in our society right now, my, my two stepdaughters are both in their early twenties and, you know, they're out of, they're out of the home mm-hmm. and living their lives. And my daughters, uh, range from seven to 17. So I've got a, you know, a still got some pretty young ones. Mm-hmm. And right now, due to the situation that we're in, I actually haven't seen them in, in over a couple of months because we're sheltering in place here and my uh, my ex is sheltering in place and my wife has asthma. So we're trying mm. not to take any chances at the moment. So sure. uh, right, right now, things are a little too quiet. I, I'm used <laughs> to chaos and noise and <laughs> Uh, distractions all the time, and I think if anything, I'm the, the the Twitter has been a nice therapy for me to 
be able to throw my mind into uh, something other than how much it kind of sucks right now to not be able to uh, to see my girls as frequently as I would like. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Are, are your girls sports fans? Do they embrace your your celebrity? Well, they they embrace the celebrity. Yeah, I think they get a kick out of the fact that their dad is a, a little bit known now, and so it's fun for them whenever I'm. Uh, you know, if I do a TV appearance or if I'm featured in a newspaper or on a website, I think that I think that they enjoy that. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm sure that they never that they never would have expected. So it's kind of this funny thing, like what's dad doing in the paper? You know, <laughs> yeah. um, as far as being sports fans, I tried, Sweeney, I, at my my oldest. I really <laughs> You know, people ask me, right? Guys, particularly, will ask you. You know, did you did you want a son? You want a son, right? Every every time. So for five kids, five daughters, mm-hmm. you know, the first one, I always told people, all I want is a healthy kid, yeah, right? That's of course, the, that's the cliche answer, but it's the true that's answer true. too. It, at the end of the day, you just want a healthy child. And so I got a little girl, and I thought, you know, I, girls can like sports too. So I basically just threw all my sports stuff at her. <laughs> And like you said, as long as they're healthy, that's the uh, that's the important part. Uh, that's it. That's right. Were you always a creative person? Yes. Um, I, I look back on my childhood. You know, my my uh, not to make this the sad podcast, but my dad mm. passed away when I was five. He mm. was a county sheriff and uh, passed away in a uh, uh, pursuit, a uh, oh, high speed wow. chase. And so I was raised uh, only child with a single mom um, for my entire childhood. And so I think partly looking back on it now, I think partly I, I did a lot of imaginative, creative play because that was necessary. Now I had friends, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you live alone, you don't have access to somebody to do something with all the time. And, you know, of course my kids complain about the opposite problem. They tell me that, they just want silence. <laughs> they want their <laughs> sisters to go away for a while. But when I when I was a kid, I wouldn't have known what to do if I had siblings, you know. But uh, so for me, it was a lot of it was a lot of creating sports based dice games and, yeah. and you know getting a Nerf ball and creating my own rules and and that kind of stuff. So so I think that uh, some of that creativity probably was born out of. Uh, you know, being an only child that was, you know, looking for entertainment. Do you find pressure now to be creative? And and let's face it, your you know your content is designed to be funny too. There are laughs to be had. Is there pressure now to be funny and creative every day? I think that the pressure to deliver becomes greater the bigger your audience gets. 
So, you know, it's not something I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that I feel pressure in the in the sense that I've been doing this for so long now that I have a great degree of self-confidence. Yeah. I know what kind of material I can write. I've demonstrated to myself that I'm able to do that on a, on a daily basis. And I'm not saying that some days aren't better than others, but more or less I'm, I'm able to perform at the level that I want to on a daily basis. So I wouldn't say that I'm ever nervous, but I definitely am aware that there's more eyeballs than ever on the feed. And, you know, I don't know who's watching it. I don't know who might like to work with me. I don't know what opportunities could be lurking out there around the corner. So, uh, you know, I try to get up every day and be the best that I can be because, um, you know, I think my audience has come to expect a certain level of, of comedy and, and certainly I'm looking to continue to grow that audience and, you know, let people know that super seventies is, you know, one of the, one of the funnier, uh, places that you can travel on the interwebs. So where did you start gathering your material and how has that evolved over the last five years? Well, I, I get questions where people will, you know, I think sometimes people think that I have some sort of access to photos and stuff that the rest of us don't. Mm. And, and that's not the case at all. I, I go out there and search for all the garbage that's freely available, but just kind of hidden on the internet. And, uh, you know, from the beginning, it's been a lot of Google image searches, searching Pinterest, searching, you know, where, where basically anywhere on the internet that I can find oddball photos, uh, nostalgic things and, and ideally things that people haven't seen a million times. I mean, mm-hmm. we all like our old favorites, but you know, what, what I get a lot of pleasure in is when I can find some photo that I've never seen before. And at this point, as you might imagine, I've been scouring the internet pretty, pretty thoroughly for, you know, going on six years now. So if I'm able to find something that I haven't seen and it, and it amuses me, I know that the odds are really good that the vast majority of my audience probably hasn't seen it either. Is there a formula for the the wording of things that uh, do, do you kind of go through little drafts? Like, I mean, it's it's obviously short bursts on Twitter, but I'm imagining your process is a lot like writers do, where you you go through a couple of drafts until you find the right wording to to match what you're trying to convey. Absolutely. You know, the, sometimes they come to, every tweet's different. So sometimes the the caption will just come to me immediately, beautifully, completely. You know, I think it was, I think Paul McCartney uh, dreamed yesterday, right? Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he woke up and he was asking people, well, I'm not comparing my, I guess I did. That's pretty douchey. I compare myself <laughs> to Paul McCartney. But, but, but I understand, you know, apart from his talent and my lack thereof, you know, I understand the idea that sometimes things come to you completely and it's almost like someone else wrote it. Sometimes I'll think of a caption and it will just flow out beautifully. I'll get it. You know, it's like you nail it on the first take and you think, I don't even know where that came from, but that was just perfect. Other times, maybe I don't like the caption and I rewrite it and, or the wording is not quite, it's not quite funny enough. So I reword it. Sometimes I'll play around with something for five or 10 minutes 
and I'll just put it away. And mm-hmm. I'll realize that for whatever reason, this one is stumping me today. But but I might bring it out two or three days later, take a look at it, and boom, it comes to me. So every tweet's different. Some of them are really easy. Some of them have a little more craftsmanship, uh, you know, that goes into it because uh, you're right. I mean, I'm I'm trying to hit just the right note with those captions, and it's not always easy. How often are you checking comments, likes, and retweets, and how does that kind of give you feedback to figure out what are the hits and what are the misses? Well, the feedback is instant, and I, I find that I'm kind of a I'm kind of a junkie for that because what I what I've discovered about myself is if I'm working on any sort of other project where the content that I'm creating doesn't have an audience or a capacity for people to give you some type of uh, a feedback on what you've done, I I find that to be a less pleasurable. You know, this is almost like stand-up sure. in a sense. Yeah. It's kind of virtual stand-up. And so you find out quickly whether something is going to be popular or not. I, I can tell you within – easily I can tell you within five minutes of having posted something what the audience thought of it. And, you know, people tell me sometimes very kindly, I'm sure, much too kindly, people will say, well, you know, you never miss. And I say, no, I miss every day for a fact. <laughs> yeah. And and the ones that miss really, really badly, you just don't remember it because I deleted them. <laughs> okay. you know, if I put something out there and it's one hand clapping, I don't need that clogging up the timeline. So, you know, there's a certain amount of humility that goes with it because certainly I get a lot of accolades for being funny and I get a lot of really nice recognition for it. But you know, if you put something out there and it's been up for five minutes and it's been retweeted once, you know, that one did not hit the mark. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, I let the audience uh, tell me what they think is funny. And, and in five and a half years of doing this, I think that I've developed a really, really good instinct. I'm not always right. But I've developed a pretty good instinct for what my audience's appetite is. As far as I can tell, Ricky, the only brushback you seem to get is about the language. Um, You provide R-rated material. Now, I will tell you that you and I are speaking in a PG space, so that'll shape your answer. But how much does that critique bother you? Because it seems to come every so often. I would say that it doesn't bother me because certainly I've made a choice to work in the style that I work. And it's not intended to be gratuitous. It's not intended to be cursing for the sake of cursing. It's really just me speaking in the voice that I know best, which is just my honest voice. I found out one of the things that I think I learned in the first year of the account is if this was going to really be good, I needed to just be honest about who I am and not try to mimic somebody else's style, but really just use my own voice. And so I made a deal with myself pretty early in this that I was going to tweet things that I thought were funny. I was going to tweet about topics that were of interest to me. And it was very, very personal in that way. So the beautiful thing about this, and the whole thing is beautiful because I'm having the adventure of my life, but the thing that's really beautiful about it is I haven't had to compromise um, 
in terms of my own sense of what I think is funny and what I'm interested in. The, the fact that so many people have demonstrated that they're interested in those things too makes it really nice because when I get up every day, I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. I don't have to worry about serving up this content that I'm not really interested in or that content that bores me. I'm able to just get up every day and speak to what I'm interested in and what I think is funny, and people have been really receptive to it. Now, as far as the cursing goes, I think it's a little overrated. I curse maybe, and I've actually gone back and looked at this because people do talk about it a lot, and I think they focus on it a little too much. I I curse in maybe three out of every 10 tweets. If people go through my timeline, it's, it's it's almost like the old Eddie Murphy thing from uh, years ago when uh, he was talking about Bill Cosby criticizing him, saying, yeah. you know, why, do yeah, you, yeah. why do you use the, the curse words? And I'll, I'll be PG here, but, you know, I'm paraphrasing Eddie, but he basically said, you know, people act like I get up and just say, F this, F that, F this, F you, goodbye, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's certainly not what I do. Now, do I, do I sprinkle tweets with, um, you know, it's sort of like, con- it's condiments, for for tweets, right? Sometimes a tweet just needs a little something. And so I speak in the same way on Twitter that I would speak to you if you and I were throwing back a drink and talking sports and just hanging out. I want the Twitter account to have the same voice that someone would would have if they knew me. And I think that's part of the reason that it's become popular. I think that people sense that it's authentic. And it, I may be wrong, but I think people sense that it's authentic. And if they do, they're right, because it is. Can I tell you that I love that in the last 10 minutes, you've just compared yourself to both Paul McCartney and Eddie Murphy? That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, if you're, if you're, <laughs> when other people compare me uh, to things, it turns out to not be nearly as favorable. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to keep a balance here. I figure that... You know, when I when I get compared to uh, a couple of undesirables by somebody else tomorrow, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll still be uh, even uh, since I'm uh, apparently uh, uh, so so uh, <laughs> uh, flattering uh, of myself. But you know, there's nothing wrong with a little healthy self esteem, right? There you go. Pat yourself on the back. It's okay. <laughs> you've uh, you've spawned a few imitators. How does that feel? Well, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, so it th- that's nice. I mean, I, if anything comes out of this podcast, I just want Twitter to give me my blue check mark. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, you don't have one? I don't have a blue check mark, oh, and that wow. really irritates me. <laughs> to be quite honest with you, and it, especially because I'm at the point where I, I am spawning a lot of imitators and so forth, and that's great. But you know, people have inspired me, so. I don't, you know, I'm flattered if somebody takes what I've done and it gets them thinking creatively and whatever, you know, I mean, you know, there's a difference between inspiring people and people just lifting your material. Mm -hmm. That unfortunately happens sometimes too, but I think that that just kind of goes with the territory. But um, yeah, if I could get a blue check mark, that would be nice. (laughs) I'll I'll put in a good word and see what I can do for you. Thank you. Yeah, I want to talk to the manager. 
Your, uh, your comedic style, where did it come from? Who are the guys that influenced you? I mean, I mean, I can tell just by the way, you know, the conversation we're having, that stand-up comedy is something you've consumed and, and liked. I read somewhere that David Letterman was an influence to you at his show. What other parts of, uh, of comedy have influenced what you do? Well, growing up, certainly... Johnny Carson was an influence. David Letterman's stuff when he was at NBC in the 80s, I think people forget just how subversive some of that stuff was um, in a way in the mid-80s. If you look back on it 35 years later, well, people might not get that. But David was doing things that other people just weren't doing on network television. So Carson and Letterman were, were both big influences on me and George Carlin, Richard Pryor, that was such a strong era for comedians that, um, you know, I consumed tons and tons of that stuff, uh, obviously, and it's, you know, made a, made a huge impression on, on my own sensibilities. Is your content, Ricky, simply about nostalgia for you and the era in which you grew up, or is there something else that pushes you back to that time frame? That's a great question. Um, I can tell you that I was nostalgic for the seventies in the eighties yeah. <laughs> and that, and that's true. I, I distinctly remember pining for the seventies when I was a grizzled 16 year old kid in 1987. So hmm. there's probably some sort of psychological problem, uh, <laughs> at play here somewhere, but no, I, I, uh, just always connected with that era. And when I created the account, I thought, well, what are the things that I have passion for? I have passion for comedy. I have passion for sports and I have passion for the, the era that I grew up in. And so the, the Twitter account was really just an attempt to, to, to marry. And I don't even know if it was a conscious attempt, but ultimately the Twitter account uh, was just a marriage of these different things that I, that I had a passion about. I, I heard uh, in another interview you gave uh, a really good example you uh, you set out about the, the movie Days to Confused. It's made in 1993 and it looks back to 1976. And the time span in between, it's a pretty stark contrast. However, the difference between 2020 and 2003 is a little harder to define except maybe that it's pre-iPhones. So we, you know, we grew up in an era that it's very easy to define uh, what nostalgia is. And maybe, uh, maybe it's just because we're not looking for it. Maybe it's because we've been adults the whole time in this era and it's harder for us to define. Uh, maybe, you know, our children will be able to define it. But it seems like you're hitting on an era that is very easy to say, yeah, it's not like this anymore. That is a great point. And when I was a kid growing up, right, I didn't really, I kind of went back to the 40s. My parents were born in the 40s. So, you know, the 40s were the 40s, and I had an idea of what that meant. World War II, and everything was in black and white, and men wore suits everywhere, and everything was kind of classy. And then we got into the 1950s, and that's the dawn of rock and roll, and you know, the happy days, America and mm -hmm. all of this. Then you got the sixties and, you know, I won't go through the tropes of every decade, yeah. but from the forties to the fifties, to the sixties, to the seventies, to the eighties, and even into the nineties, I think all of those decades really stand on their own. There are characteristics that they share that are clear lines of demarcation from the, from the other, the other decades. Mm 
And I do think, I don't know if it's, again, I don't know if it's because I'm older and I was more concerned with raising a family and my job and so forth, but I have a hard time getting a handle in some respects on like the last 20 years Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to find those differences. Like you're referencing Dazed and Confused. Yeah, from 1976 to 1993, it's just 17 years, but it was such a, it was just such a clear difference in what American culture was like in 76 as opposed to 93. And as you were alluding to, other than our technology has gotten better in, in, you know, many respects and social networking has become a, a bigger deal. I don't necessarily know where the instant comedy is to go back and make a joke about 2003. You know, I, yeah. I'm sure that there's somebody else out there who's younger and brighter and of a different generation and who will be able to do that and do that well. But I personally just can't find the connection there. I think one of the things that really helps your content click also is that our generation was built on what I would consider communal experiences. You know, we all watch the same TV shows at the exact same time because there were only four channels and nobody had a DVR. Um, and, and I think that's something that clicks in your post because everyone from our generation remembers the same things uh, that you do, whether they were actually watching them or not, you knew that they were on because again, there were only so many options to choose from. That is a huge part of it, and that's a really good observation. I think so much of what we're able to share, and you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 48. I'll be 49 this year. And there are probably things that you and I just instantly can relate to and talk about because we did have a more communal experience. And you know, today, if somebody tells me, like, hey, there's this show that's on, and I really like it. I've been binging it. You should check it out. You know, I may I may have never heard of the show. And then, well, what's it on? Is it on Apple TV? Is it on yeah. Hulu? Is it on YouTube? Is it on, a, is it on a network? How do I access it? Where is it? There's so much stuff now. And that's great in one sense because, you know, I, I had uh, Nick Bakai, the, the comedian sure. TV producer on my podcast a few years ago. And we were talking about this and we were talking about Laverne and Shirley. I think it may have been me that brought up Laverne and Shirley. And he and I were talking about how, you know, it really wasn't that good. I mean, it was okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not wanting to yeah. diss, yeah. Uh, you know, Penny Marshall or uh, Cindy Williams or anything. I mean, it was all right, yeah. but it wasn't that great. We watched it mostly because it was on. Yeah. And nowadays, maybe overall shows are better. I don't know. But there's so many freaking options that I may not, not only have never seen your favorite show, I I may not even be aware that it exists. And I think something's lost there. And the timing of it, too. We all watched those shows at the exact same time and came in the next day talking about it. Now there are shows, you tell me, oh, I watched this, so you should go watch it. And then you do. It's not all a shared at the exact same time experience. That's the thing, right? Like, I remember in the 80s, and of course, you know, this is another one of those things that takes on an entirely different connotation, knowing what we know now, but the Cosby Show. Yeah. When that, sh- when that show was number one, 7 o'clock Central Time, Thursday night, 
you were just in front of your TV. I mean, that's just, you know, and if it was like, if I'm out hanging out with my friends, if I'm playing basketball or something, I'm sure I'm looking at my watch that I was probably wearing, you know, and, and I look at it, I'm like, hey, it's 6.30, I got to go. I don't Time to go in. Cosby. Yep. And I think it's very impossible probably for this generation, you know, folks of a, of a certain age, our kids' generation anyway, to understand that the clock actually used to dictate your daily habits, you know, when it came to television, because if you, if you missed it, now maybe you had a VCR, but if we go back far enough, yep. you know, there are no VCRs. And if you missed it, well, you can wait several months and hope that they show it over the summer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was right. a big deal to actually be there and, and watch it. And if somebody was, you know, interrupting you or whatever, dad might have to shout because if he misses what, uh, you know, cause said, he can't rewind it back. You know, it's right. Gone. No pause, nothing. And and I but I think that's kind of what we're seeing now with the last dance. You know, everybody's yeah. locked in. We're all quarantined and we have a thirst for sports programming. We're all locked in to Sunday nights at nine o'clock, just like we used to be way back when. It really is a throwback. That thought occurred to me this week as well. And you know, certainly, like everyone else, I I would rather not be in this situation, and I'll be glad when our lives are able to safely return to something resembling normal. But if there's any sort of silver lining in an otherwise gloomy cloud, yeah, it is kind of refreshing to be able to uh, uh, at least have virtual water cooler conversation again, right? Yeah. That. Yeah. Whatever happened on uh, the last dance this week, it's going to be getting talked about. And if you reference it, suddenly everybody knows what you're talking about again. It's almost like we're it's almost like we're having a mini Super Bowl every every week while this thing's going on. So you ran down some of your favorite athletes for me that uh, you had growing up. Who are some of your favorites to watch? Maybe from this century, who would make a uh, a run at Mount Rushmore for you? Well, you know, number one would be Tiger, I think. Um, you know, certainly uh, the way that he dominated golf, particularly at the very, very beginning of of this century when, I mean, the guy won the U.S. Open by 15 strokes. And when you really stop and think about that, you'll never see anything like that again in your life. Probably it's just remarkable and to, and to hold all four majors at one time. I, I suppose that, uh, the, the odds are against him now to catch Nicholas, but, uh, Tiger Woods at his very best, he may have been better at his sport than anybody else has ever been at their sport. I'm talking about peak level ability. So Tiger, Tiger Woods would be, uh, near the top of that list. I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I've enjoyed the uh, Roger Federer, Nadal, mm-hmm. Djokovic era to have arguably the three best tennis players, men's tennis players in history, active all at the same time. Uh, you know, people are really going to miss that in three or four years when they're all gone and we're watching a bunch of guys from Sweden try to win their first major. <laughs> uh, people are probably going to appreciate that more. So as, as far as individual sports go, some of those guys, I mean, certainly, um, you know, getting over into team sports, I, you know, I would say, you know, certainly I'm a Cubs fan. So probably the biggest thing that's happened for me 
uh, you know, over the course of recent times is the Cubs finally getting a World Series on the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big moment, huh? Absolutely. I mean, it was a huge moment. I when they when they uh, when they won the pennant, I literally went out into my yard and I just shouted at the top of my lungs <laughs> like a crazy man. It was a, it was a release, you know, uh, to see that happen. But so certainly, you know, I've enjoyed uh, w- watching that team. That 2016 team was fantastic. And then, you know, you get into, uh, you get into the, the NBA and the NFL. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a LeBron fan. Uh, he, he lost me a little bit with the whole uh, decision and, <laughs> and going to Miami, but, but he's, he's won me back. I, I mean, the guy is spectacular to watch. And in my opinion, you know, let's say one of the, one of the five or six best players in, in NBA history. So he, he's another one that, has, uh, you know, certainly given me a lot of entertainment. All right. So besides a Twitter account, Super 70s Sports, you now have a line of apparel like your Jacqueline Smith or Cheryl Teagues or something. Tell, tell me more <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that. The makeup, the, the makeup lines are, are coming. We're still, developed, <laughs> we're, still te- we're still testing those cruelly on animals right now. <laughs> uh, but so, yes, yes, sir. We launched uh, a Super 70s Sports store dot com uh in late September of last year. And it's uh it's it's an attempt, I think, as much as anything, to capture the the vibe and the sensibility of the of the Twitter account and you know do it in a wearable fashion, right? And so we've we've got something like five hundred different designs in the store right now. The response has been tremendous i i couldn't possibly be more grateful to my audience for how they've embraced the uh the store and in the apparel it's uh it's been an unbelievable experience to say the least i think the uh the one that you've gotten the most traction out of recently is the one featuring howard cosell oj simpson and bruce jenner um you show any one of us the picture, we can all see the joke in it, but you worded it perfectly. Um, how did that picture, how did you find that picture and, and how did that whole thing come to you? That was one that someone sent me and people are kind enough to send me things. And that's one of the things that does make my job a little easier. Uh, once the account got to a certain level of prominence, people started to send me things basically just out of kindness to help me out. When people would find something, see something weird, you know, I'm just the guy that gets that now, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a, which is a, a and kind of a fun place to occupy. Sure. Right. When you, if you see something, but you know, here's William Shatner and uh, you know, Barbara Eden and they're <laughs> doing something weird. It's like, people are like, man, you got to get that to Ricky Cobb. Yeah. So I guess I've achieved something in life, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where people will send me things. And that was one that someone sent me and I knew when I saw it, that it was obviously good, but I remember I couldn't really get the caption that was, believe it or not, that was one that the caption didn't come to me right away. And I remember looking at it for maybe a couple of minutes and thinking this is really good, but I don't know. I, I can't. I don't have it right now. So I actually left that picture in my phone 
for probably a week or two. Mm. And then I came back to it later. And when I came back to it later, I just pulled it up one night, looked at it, and the joke was there. And <laughs> I made the joke and I sent the tweet. And sometimes when you send a tweet, you have a better idea. I mean, there's cer- there's certain things that I tweet that I have higher hopes for in terms of retweets and likes mm-hmm. than other things. I mean, not everything on the album can be a number one hit, right? <laughs> right so, <laughs> so it's okay for something to be like the sixth or seventh best song on the album. So some of them are album cuts. That's just the way it is. If I could be if I could be at my very 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 funniest thirty times a day. Uh, you know, I probably already would have retired from my day job. So that's not how it works, obviously. So, but when I sent that tweet out, I thought that it would be pretty well received, but I mean, man, I had absolutely no idea that that thing was going to make its way around the world and be Hmm. talked about so much and get such play. It is far and away the most successful tweet in terms of audience response that I've ever done. Ricky, I want to close with you with this, um, and I think it takes a sociology professor to answer this question for me perfectly. Uh, it would seem like we're at a time right now where we need laughs. Um, do you think your content is more valuable now because it serves as some sort of therapy that that it becomes more relevant now? That seems to be the case based on the feedback that I'm getting from other people, you know, and I want to be the, you know, and for a guy who's compared himself to Paul McCartney and and Eddie Murphy before, before I compare myself to Gandhi and everybody else who's ever done anything in life (laughs) that's out of my league, I will say that, you know, the last thing I want to do is, is, is say, Oh, I'm providing some kind of valuable service, you know, because if people enjoy it, that's wonderful. But the biggest service that I provide with the comedy right now, I think, is for me because I'm going through this weird time just like everybody else is. I have my bouts of, you know, feeling kind of down and, and, and bummed out, uh, you know, probably probably about every other day. You know, I'll have like a, a couple of minutes where I'm just like, gosh, this sucks. You know, mm-hmm. I want to I want to be able to go out and do things. And so I know that everybody else is is in that boat with me. And so the, the, the tweeting for me, as much as anything, I think makes me feel better. And if it makes other people feel a little better too, then that is one of the greatest things that I think that I could do. And people have been really kind about it. And if, if the tweets are helping some people get through a tough time, then that really makes me feel good. My thanks to Ricky Cobb. You can follow him on Twitter, if you don't already, at Super 70 Sports. And you can check out his line of t-shirts at Super70SportsStore.com. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Recent episodes include a look back at Michael Jordan's baseball career, featuring his teammate, former Birmingham shortstop Glenn D. Sarcina, and former Chattanooga pitcher John Courtright on Facing Jordan back in 1994. Also, check out recent conversations with Lowry Boa, Bobby Richardson, actor D.B. Sweeney, and many more. Subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Everyone be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.